cue the accordion. I've always wanted to say that. Kick back and get comfy while hosts Heather Wenig and her co-hosts from the Early Childhood Nerd Collective explore ways to cause and effect. Dig that funky accordion. Welcome to Cause and Effect. I'm that early childhood nerd, Heather Burnt, and I'm joined again today by Travis Taggart. Am I saying your last name right? Yep. That's All right, exactly good. How you so say it. here's Travis. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, so we are going to do this quote today. The task of the educator lies in seeing that the child does not confound good with immobility and evil with activity. And this is Maria Montessori again, right? Yep. All right. Yeah. So what's, what about this one? Tell us. Well, I know a lot of us take issue with this idea that um, children need to be sitting at a desk and be sitting by themselves and um, not really talking to each other, not fidgeting, not doing anything other than the task at hand of what they're supposed to do. Um, So I feel like this is something that has been cherished with um, the establishment of education for a very long time. I mean, we all have that, that, um, that picture of the schools back in the 1800s where a kid would have to, if they were, they made a noise at their desk, they'd have to go up and put their nose in the circle on the blackboard. Um, and it's something that's still stuck around and we don't exactly know why. And I think, um, what's really important to note is that, you have to have a really progressive perception of what body autonomy is in order to fully grasp and understand this as a teacher. Um, Because if you feel like you have the right to tell a kid not to be moving their thumbs a certain way, then you probably should not be in this field at all. (laughs) (laughs) If, if a kid, if a kid uh, crumpling up a piece of paper at their desk over and over again, because they need something to do with their hands is so distracting to you and you feel is so distracting to everybody else that that kid must be punished for doing that. That's just horrifying. I don't, I mean, there's no nice way I can put it. I can't just, I can't even sit and empathize with these teachers because it's like, you have to, there's this, this fundamental idea of you do not own these children's bodies right. that if you can't grasp that, then you're not going to be able to grasp anything else I have to say, because right. I mean, it's just, it's the same thing with like certain situations involving like spanking. I don't believe in it. It is a total dis- disenfranchisement. It hurts children in the long run. Um, but you're never going to understand just 
why I feel it's so wrong unless you also understand that you do not own your children's bodies. And it's something that I feel like we're going to be up against for a very long time as we try to um, end this era of medicating the movement out of children um, and also just yelling the <laughs> yelling the non-compliance yeah. away yeah. It, or wishing those kids away because you don't know how to deal with them. So I feel like this was something that Maria Montessori identified as an issue when she was shaping her philosophy. Um, and it's kind of sad that here almost 100 years later, mm-hmm. we're still kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. I think about with, that a lot. Getting that. Yeah. So we, you know, we call ourselves progressive and I call, I know you do. It's in your name, it's in your, <laughs> but you know, I call myself a progressive educator. Um, but so much of what, I believe in and rely on and know to be true was said by these theorists a hundred years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Tiffany and I have done a couple episodes about John Dewey. What he's Mm -hmm. saying, what he was saying then is radical Mm -hmm. now. And that's amazing to me that we've ignored it for that long. Um, And that, that even now saying something that somebody a hundred years ago said makes me seem like a rebel. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it doesn't help that a lot of these, um, progressivists in education, these progressive activists for education um, 100 years ago were not in America. Um, That's also an issue that uh, that we can kind of attribute that, or we can attribute our society's refusal to accept that to the fact that it was from the outside. Because, I mean, even now we have this Puritan aspect that if that's the way the elitist European countries do it, that's not the way we want to be doing it here. We do love our xenophobia. Right, right. <laughs> or or the, like, because so many people will use places like Finland and Sweden's education system to, like, draw a good comparison. And while I don't know for sure, as someone who does scientific research, I don't know for sure how comparable we can be since our societies are so different. Right. I mean, a lot would have to change in order for certain things from Finland and Sweden to work here. Or um, Yeah, or <laughs> um, A lot of things would have to change about how we view children in our society because a lot of stuff has to happen at home in order for those things to work here. And a lot of stresses that we have here don't translate into those parts of the world. So like people will use these examples not totally knowing that the people who are usually in charge of making our policy in America don't really want to be tied up with things like socialist countries and there's I mean it's stupid that that's something that affects how people did make their decisions but it it, it's important for us to note that because if we're going to constantly say well Finland well Sweden well all these different places and then expect these people to also climb on board with us. It kind of kind of defeats the purpose. At that point, we might just be arguing just to be louder than the other person. Yeah. And instead, we should be looking at research that's actively being done here and now. Mm-hmm. And that, that's proving that what we've got now isn't working very well um, in multiple cases. So that goes for education as far as elementary all the way to high school. And that goes for early childhood education because... For some reason, how we've shaped what early childhood education looks like is directly attributed to how we've shaped what elementary education looks like. And that's why over the past um, 20 years, we've been talking about, oh, well, kindergarten's a new first grade. Well, no, now it's a new second grade. Yeah. And PK is being treated as first grade. And it's 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 horrifying. Yeah. But 
Um, we also, if if we can't note that there are a lot of things that led to that happening and a lot of public attitudes that led to that happening, then we can't effectively advocate for reversing that trend or preserving childhood. So we have to be both consciously aware that we have to empathize with the people we're voting against. And on issues like this with body autonomy, at a certain point you cannot empathize anymore because it's, I mean, this whole concept that children's bodies do not belong to them is Puritan. It's religious. Um, It can be directly attributed to all the Abrahamic religions. Nothing against any of them. But But that's where it's coming from. That's where it comes from. I mean, that's where people who use the quotes, um, spare the rod, spoil the child, get their get their backing, get their reasoning for doing this thing. Cause a lot of times, I mean, some people can empathize with people for making decisions based off the religious texts. I still can't when right. it comes to autonomy in any case. Cause right. I mean, if there it are harms certain another person I can't. Yeah. There are certain texts that yeah. say it's okay to rape your wife. And that's, yeah. I mean, I'm never going to be okay with that. I'm never going to empathize with somebody's yeah. decision to do so because of their religion. And so do we really think, cause the rod that, I mean, we could go on and on about just that verse, the rod <laughs> is a shepherd's staff, right? That's what they're talking about. Do we really think the shepherds were out hitting their sheep? <laughs> or were they nope. using that rod to guide them away from the dangerous situations and keep them with the safety exactly. and all that? So exactly uh, that's bonkers <laughs> I mean, yeah i've noticed but it's very interesting um, that that's that that's where people are choosing that in any situation they're using vocabularies that have been translated and translated over yeah. and over to apply to real world situations right. today um and not like those a people lot of these can't messages. agree on which translation is the best translation i mean yeah. they're fighting amongst themselves about whether it's king james or new international yeah. <laughs> Whatever. And, and so when we when we talk about how how Puritan understanding of the world has affected how we do things today, I mean that's where we get this whole social structure where compliance is important, um, being part of a binary is important. Mm-hmm. There is a definite right, a definite wrong. There's no in between, and then that's also where we get that we have the responsibility to control mm-hmm. our children's bodies, yeah. and it's I mean. I can say this word over and over again, but it is horrifying that that's the way things work. I mean, I've gone to programs um, that have hired me to do trainings with them where I will see, like, if a teacher tells a kid to go to timeout and the kid says no, the teacher will go over and grab the child, pick them up like they're going to be held to them. Like, oh, I'll be, I'll sit there and be like, I can't say anything yet because I don't know if they're just, like, picking them up to right. so just be like, do that moment of deep breathing where you're uh-huh. just holding the kid so that you don't go overboard yeah. and they don't go overboard. But usually it's just they're picking them up to just throw them back down, them in, down. in a certain space. It's like, yeah. what about that certain space is going to change what's going on? It's a magical space, Travis. <laughs> so, and so a lot of times, I mean, I, there was this teacher in the first child care program that I, I ever worked in. There was this teacher. I'm not going to say her name, but she was really, really, she was really good for kids. Mm-hmm. In the same, it, like... In everything she did that was very good for kids, she had a cut like just I mean a couple of these things that she would do that were just not good for kids. And at a certain point, it was so evident that these kids did not take her, her discipline that seriously because of the fact that she was 
she was guiding them in a different way, but was just using this because it was something additional that she knew. She would send kids to timeout. They'd have to sit there very quiet, quietly and still. Um, and when they were ready to join the group again, they had to like touch their nose or something. And when they when she would see that their finger was on their nose, that they were calmed down and ready to come back in, then they could rejoin without like no questions asked. Yeah. It was just like a step off to the side thing. What I took issue with was the step off to the side and stay still and silent because, I mean, there's a lot to be said about how, I mean, I do this where I'll be like, hey, how about you just go over there, take a minute, just breathe, or if they're like having a little bit of meltdown, I'll just have your meltdown over here so that so that you're not screaming in everybody's face, just do it over here. There's a lot to be said about that, but if I was telling them to stop crying, like stop this crying, Go sit over there very silently. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that I think Maria Montessori was referring to where yeah. she was saying that that is confounding this idea of silence and immobility yeah. with being good. Yeah. And then the activity as being bad. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that there's there's some value. Like, well, this is sort of what you were saying. If they just need to calm down, they just need to get a hold of themselves or whatever, then you're teaching them how to manage emotions. That's very different than... You've displeased yeah. me. Get out of my sight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which none or, of us would respond well to. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's one of those things where if, I mean, I don't know if anybody listening to this is looking for tips on discipline. You <laughs> Everybody have... <laughs> is looking for tips all the time. <laughs> you, you have to offer that going off to the side as a choice as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to make it a mandate, you are essentially saying that when you are having an emotion... You must isolate yourself from everybody else so that they are not, um, uh, I don't even know what the right word, so that they are not um, so misfortunate. Not because yeah, yeah so they're not uncomfortable yeah. or their day is not held up by you existing, by yeah. your existence. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, there, I can talk about the different gender politics that come up in classrooms, but a lot of times it's little girls who are upset, screaming, yelling, that the teachers will be foremost to send off to the side. You must isolate yourself right now. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we can talk <laughs> for a long time about what that sets up in a woman's life yeah. for that these people cannot see me. And because with boys, it's like, for some reason, they start crying. You say, stop crying, and mm-hmm. it's over with. And then if you keep telling a young girl to, to stop crying, it's just going to make things worse and worse and worse. Both are so bad, both so damaged. Um, not only these kids' perception of gender, mm-hmm. um, if things must be kept on a binary, it's not only challenging what they think the gender roles are, that boys just shouldn't cry, and if girls must, they must get out of boys' right. sight right. in order to do so. Yeah. It's so it's so weird, and it's so interesting how people will do this and not even know that that's what they're doing. Like, they won't even see, like, oh, I just told that boy to stop crying and left him alone, whereas I just told this girl she needed to be off to the side. I picked her up and put her off to the side because she wouldn't listen to me. But I think that might come into the mindless obedience that we talked about before. (laughs) A lot of those teachers have been raised to just do things the way you've seen them done or been told they should be done without thinking it through all the time. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of, even, there's an article I go back to all the time Um, it's almost 20 years old, but it's still really relevant for me at least, that talks about even if teachers have had really good training in developmentally appropriate teaching practices and child development, what they go back to is their own memories of school, which are Mm -hmm. elementary school, um, 
which is elementary school. And that's so that it gets, just gets perpetuated mm-hmm. without thinking about what's happening. Um, so at some point we have to shake ourselves up and say, am I part of this or am I not going to be part of this? And if I'm yeah. not going to be part of this, what am I going to do about it? And this is totally relevant, even total, like outside of the realm of a classroom or a program. It's, I see stuff on Facebook all the time where someone's videotaped a child's tantrum in a store and they'll, they'll be going on and on about how, well, when I was a kid, I knew that I had to sit still in the cart, right? I had to sit still in this car, in that cart. And if I wanted something, I didn't get like all this stuff where they're just kind of like expressing jealousy that this kid gets to have an emotion. (laughs) Like that's honestly how I see it. You are just so jealous. Kinder than I am. (laughs) (laughs) That someone, that someone is letting their kid have this moment. And if it inconveniences, if it inconveniences people in a store, get the fuck out of public spaces. (laughs) If you're inconvenienced by noise, get out. And I like yeah. that's something that also is super important for me to talk about when I'm having workshops is that if you are afraid of loud noises, get the fuck out of this profession. Right. Yep. Like I, I, so many parents, when I talk to them about what they value, like what they want to see when they walk into an early childhood setting, so many people say, well, I want it to be quiet. I want the kids to be yeah. walking. I want them all to be, I want them to be working in different spaces. Um, so what they're envisioning is an American Montessori program, not a European Montessori <laughs> program. What they're, <laughs> they're envisioning this American Montessori program, maybe sometimes where the kids are wearing, I mean, I think of places like the Goddard School, which is a national program where they're wearing all wearing uniforms. Uh-huh. Um, you walk in, it's just silent. The kids are always in straight lines. And I, I used to run a classroom just like this. So I yeah. feel like I have the right to just be like shitting on it nonstop. Yes. <laughs> because, Me too, yes. Yeah. Um, and so people have this idea that that's what it's supposed to look like. Whereas I ha- I then have the have the horrible job to then tell them, well, what I want to see when I walk into my programs is I want to walk in and not be able to hear the other person speak when I'm there. Yeah. Like, I want it to be loud. I want there to be places where kids can escape to be quiet, for sure. sure. But I, if I don't hear kids yelling and screaming and, and just, like, the most delight and wonder of running around mm-hmm. indoors screaming... Like, today, I walked into my program. The kids had one, one child that stood somewhere holding string in his hand while the others pulled the string all throughout the building. So when I walked in, it looked like a laser maze of just all this string. (laughs) Uh And I like, this was one of those moments where I woke, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed for sure. I walked in and I like had to take a huge deep breath because I was like, I have two responses to this. (laughs) I can think to myself, how shitty is this going to be when none of these kids want to pick this up? And I am then tasked with cutting all this string down and picking it up or I could say, this is the coolest thing right. ever. Now I get to be a super spy going through. <laughs> like, yeah. and it, so that's the kind of things that when I, like in a lot of centers that I work in, they dread the idea of a parent coming into tour and seeing stuff like right. that. And you know what? At a cer- to a certain extent, I dread that too. Um, because I would want to make sure that I'm there so that I have, like, I can show all the teachers, like, this is how I want this to be. Cause you know, when you're a teacher, you can believe everything 
every little tenant of everything you do, but when you're left to then defend the business's practices, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes you forget things, and sometimes you freeze up. So I never fault them for not being able to defend the practice because a lot of times I just want, if you don't know what to say, just have the parent call me or call me and I can talk to them on the phone. Um, Because, I mean, when you're working with kids, it's so difficult to also then be a salesperson for this. So... Well, and I do if you have the, all, the other responsibility of supervising them at the same time that you're supposed to be articulating your practice yeah. to this questioning adult, yeah, it's, then that's so not I, the right time for that anyway. I mean, for me, a lot of people will say that they want their teachers to be able to articulate practice in the moment. Mm-hmm. But when I teach, I cannot do anything outside of that moment. Like, it's, it's just not going to work out. When I am working with kids, even on days where someone comes in for a tour, there are times where I'm like, I can't, I, you'll have to come back at a certain, we'll have right. to set up a time for you to come back because I'm in the middle of this right now and I don't want to leave this behind. I want my teachers to be able to articulate the practice and defend it after the fact, in reflection. It has to be part of reflection because this, like I I will always say, this is an art and this is a science. So when it's an art, when you're there doing it, you are stuck there. You're not going to be sitting there. This is why I'm doing this paint stroke. This (laughs) is why I'm doing this one. So it's no different than that kind of art. You're not going to be sitting there going, this is why I'm saying this. This is why I'm saying this. And a lot of people argue that you should be. But what I want people to do is be able to do that when they are viewing their practice as a science later in reflection. That's why I started my blog because I was reflecting on things every day. Like for the first two months that my second program was open, I had a couple of teachers that liked to stay like two hours after close to just sit and talk about certain things that happened in the day. And they would be like, well, did I do this right? Should I should have done this better? And that's important. Like that's the most important time to be having those conversations because again, you don't want to be talking about kids while they're there you don't want to be um kind of taking the magic away from the moment for those kids by sitting there being like it's kind of condescending to sit there and be like i'm playing this with him because it teaches him math (laughs) it's it's weird because like if i'm playing like if i was just playing this like building a castle with you and you're trying to tell this person that the only reason you were doing this with me was to teach me math like i am like six-year-old me is smart enough to know that you just totally took the magic away from that moment. (laughs) That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, it's interesting to me. The the things that we that people will expect teachers to do, especially when they're part of this thought category, where we want to make sure that everybody knows why play is important, um, and why we have to defend it, and why we have to preserve childhood the way that we want it to be preserved. Mm-hmm that we have to treat things the way, like the way that we would treat science. Like during the experiment, we're not sitting there, like when we're gathering data, we are not drawing conclusions. Right. We're gathering the data first. Once the data is all together, then we can start drawing conclusions based on the entirety of it. Uh Because there are certain days where I will just, in for a span of an hour, I will feel like I'm the absolute worst teacher ever. I'm not doing anything right. And then the rest of that day will go pretty well. If I had made conclusions about that first hour, I would be doing things like I need to take out all of the Legos because they just get thrown all over the floor. Like, <laughs> yeah. I would be making all these rash decisions 
and changing my philosophy right there for the rest of the day that I wouldn't have needed to do if I would have just let the day play out the way it was supposed to. And I feel like that goes where you can go an entire month of letting something play out where something's not going the way you want it to, or this material that you've put out is just becoming a nuisance because of how messy it, or how spread out it gets and how we're always having to put things together and stuff like that. But that kind of reflection is a skill that not everybody has. Like I, that's that's something that has been a surprise to me in the last five years as I, uh, seven years, as I was a center director and now that I train teachers primarily. Um, it, it shocked me that not everybody just naturally does that kind of reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, that's where having, you know, a supervisor like you, you can model that for them and kind of yeah. work them through it. And, um, but that... I it's a skill that has to be practiced. So for some people thinking about thinking about that could be really intimidating, I think. Yeah. And there are little, um, really the, this is one of my workshops. I don't want to give all my secrets away, but I can, I totally can. Um, there are little tiny nuggets of things that you can do in order to teach that to anyone you want to. And one of the biggest thing, cause like a lot of times when we're wanting to, know what when we're wanting to be important in the moment when we're wanting affirmation that yes we are important we need to be here in the moment i have a giant whiteboard that i have that i had the teachers write i I asked them what subjects do you think are important for early childhood for for these kids to be engaging in like Obviously, I'm not a fan of su- of subjects, but a lot of people compartmentalize yeah. the things that we learn into subjects. So what they did was they wrote out all these subjects, and they came up with like 12 of things that they want to be teaching every mm-hmm. single day. And I wrote it all on this whiteboard, and then I said, now, you're not going to say a word. You're just going to let these kids play. And when they're playing, you are going to, oh, there's these kids over here that are dressing up. Go write playing dress up on that whiteboard, circle it and draw lines to every Uh, single subject you think that just impacted. Uh So they would draw lines to social studies, to art because it was creative. They would draw things to social skills because they were talking to each other and they were um, exploring different things to deal with like gender roles and stuff like Uh that. So when they are able to see how play and when they're able to see and define how the certain things that the kids are playing are impacting these elements that they think make up an education, then they're more likely to be able to reflect on the date. So then it'll keep going and eventually they'll stop writing on the board as much Uh because they'll be so involved in what's going on or observing what's going on. And then at the end of the day, they'll be rushing to put it all in before (laughs) the parents get there so that the parents can see everything that happened. And, as that goes along, as it becomes more arbitrary, like it should be because subjects are arbitrary, <laughs> as it becomes more arbitrary, then they're able to just, when a parent comes and picks a kid up, they're like, oh, what'd you do today? What'd you learn today? They can just rattle off, well, we did uh-huh. this, this, and this, and we were, and it doesn't even need to be confounded to these right, subjects. Right, And I think that and, deepens the work for the teachers, too. Right. To and, be able to be in, the, in that moment like that. And it helps them because letting the free play happen and letting the loud noises happen, letting the running in the room happen. You're not confounding activity with bad mm-hmm. or with Eve. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good way to tie it back to them. Yeah. Quote yeah. is that when you are able to, if you need to make sense of chaos 
And I mean, a lot of people will tell you that the only way to do that is through music, but the other way is <laughs> just through documentation, any kind of documentation. If you are able to have that, to, to have a documentation that means something to you, that lets you know that you're still important, you're still quote unquote in That's charge true, of what's yeah. going on, then it just works out. It makes you feel better about your job. It makes, it makes you feel like you're not just sitting off to the side while some, while this is all happening. Right. Waiting for some behavior to jump in. And Yeah. Cause a lot of people do confuse the, I mean, this goes right with a quote too. A yeah. lot of people confuse what I want teachers to be doing with that immobility is good. And that activity is bad yeah. because I, I don't want teachers to be interacting and playing with kids as much as I want them to be standing off to the side where every kid knows where they are Mm -hmm. and being a lighthouse, guiding them around, helping them find their way to what they're supposed to do, answering questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want them to be in a certain place. And then if they feel the need to jump into something organically, then go do it. But if you're going to like walk around to each group of kids, be like, I'm playing Legos now with you. It's it's stupid. And the kids know it's stupid. Today, but today, we feel I like we need to be doing something. Yeah, today I had so few kids. I was all alone by myself in the center with, f- I think, four kids today. Because it, we, it was, a, I don't even know why I stayed open today anyway, because yeah. everybody's off work for the holiday. So um, I had four kids, and after they had finished their lunch and everything, they went off and did their own thing. I didn't hear or see, I didn't hear from them or see them for almost two and a half hours. <laughs> They went off to a different room in the center. And I didn't even realize that it had been two hours by the time I looked up because I was like going around cleaning things Uh and vacuuming things and just making sure that for the next teacher that was taking over my spot, I didn't leave them with a whole bunch of stuff I needed to be doing. So I was just cleaning up, and after a while, I'm like, I should probably know where these kids are. But we're a small center. We're a small program. An alarm will go off if they open a door to the outside. At least I know they're still in the building. At least I know they're all still here, and I'm certain if one of them was hurt or something, I would be the first to know. Like, (laughs) They know where to find me if there's an emergency. Yeah, and it's stuff like that that just harbors trust that they can be they can be moving around on their own, but they all know where I am. So if they right. need me, they can find me. Right. And if they have a question, they can ask me. It's, yeah. it's the way that I want my teachers to behave. But a lot of times they just think that, well, if I'm sitting off to the side, then I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And that's like, in, in my world, I want that to be that to feel okay in the same way that I want being like going around and doing stuff with them to feel okay. I want them to not have any kind of emotional weight attached to them where one is good and one is bad. I want it to be dynamic. I want it to depend on the situation. Well, I think that kind of goes back to, I can't remember if it was this episode or another one that we recorded where I said something about ego getting in the way. We want to feel like teachers. We want to feel validated because we have to feed that ego. And so yeah. we end up interrupting and uh, invalidating children's ideas yeah. and, um, because we are taking care of our own. Yeah, you know, we want to coach them. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't work. Nobody wants to be coached. <laughs> Nobody wants to be coached. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, goodness. All right. Well, that, I think, uh, do you have any last thoughts on that? Because we're about at half an hour, I think. Um, I just, 
Let, I'm gonna I'm gonna read that quote one yeah. more time, and make sure I have everything. Okay, establish or no, nope, that was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> the task of the educator lies in seeing that the child does not confound good with immobility and evil with activity. I say that we should embrace all the activity we possibly can. I say that we should not be offended when a kid does not want to sit at our circle time. Mm-hmm. I, I <laughs> we should not be upset when kids don't want to join in our activities, yeah. our physical activities, big movement activities. And I want to make sure that we all know that fidgeting is not in any way a mental illness. It is not attached to any mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. There have to be a lot more involved. And I want to, again, mm-hmm. as I always do, remind everybody that you, if, if you're a teacher, it doesn't matter how much education you have, you're not a psychologist. Yeah. So I see that I run into this issue a lot with a lot of teachers. You do not have the right to diagnose children of anything. You do not have the right to suggest diagnoses or mm-hmm. treatments to their parents. Right. I have a lot of parents that are complaining that in the public school, their teachers will, without even saying that they think the kid has ADHD, they will say, oh, he needs to be on this medication. I feel like if he was on this medication, he'd be better in my classroom. Uh, what that means Just- <laughs> is if he was on this medication, my life would be easier. That <laughs> yeah, makes so, me so sick. Yeah. So it's just, I, I want everybody to be okay with the fact that when you're a teacher, you get to just be a teacher. Yeah. And you don't have to you don't have to diagnose kids with anything. You don't have to uh, prescribe anything to parents. You just it's your job, no matter what you think is going on, to be the best possible person you can be for the kids that you're with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank huh? you. That's awesome. All, All right. right. So there's another episode of Cause and Effect. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll hear uh, see you again. <laughs> This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.